The Bride's House of Waxing Intellectual, part two of our Amityville Horror series, in which we analyze the cultural context of the book. In the 1970s, America was experiencing a period of high inflation and rising unemployment. Mortgage rates were sky high, making owning your own home extremely difficult. Americans were suffering a collective malaise due to a sputtering economy and were faced with the real possibility that their children may have a lower quality of living. This had an impact on the arts and entertainment being produced at the time. Grady Hendrix, author of Paperbacks from Hell, a book which explores the twisted history of 70s and 80s horror novels, believes that in this stressful cultural environment, haunted house novels reached the pinnacle of their popularity. The underlying themes of these books were about investments and monetary gains and loss. Burnt Offerings, written by Robert Morasco, published in 1973, sparked a wave of haunted house fables to follow, including the Amityville Horror, which follows Burnt Offerings' original blueprints of a cash-strapped family getting the deal of a lifetime for a new home, a new start, who come to regret their decisions. Hendricks puts it best when he says, Americans are always aware that their homes can be menaced by unseen forces. Is it a ghost of people murdered there, or is it toxic waste from the leaky landfill? Maybe demons are stealing your life force, or maybe it's radiation poisoning. Are the kids sick because the house is built on a cemetery, or is it the radon in the basement? A series of asbestos lawsuits highlighted by news media made it clear that there were invisible evils hiding in our own homes. Jay Anson, along with Alexis and his publishers, sold the Amityville novel as a true story. Jay Anson spent 40 plus hours interviewing the Lutzes on many occasions and listening to audio tape of George Lutz in order to put together the series of events and plot for the book. The Lutzes sold the rights to the story to Anson. The book was an instant hit, and Anson, at age 56, could have retired from the profits of the single book alone. Over 155,000 copies have been sold, and it is currently in its 13th hardcover print run. The book has made $400,000 in paperback sales alone. Much speculation has been given to the legitimacy of this true story, and some have called Anson a liar, a sloppy researcher, and a willing participant in the circus-like conspiracy in order to push book sales. Others believe Anson to be an extremely talented author who knows how to pace a story. Some of the success of the book is attributed to George Lutz himself, who never wavered in his claim that his story was anything but the truth. George was extremely unhappy with his share of the book profits and marketed his name and story to create many, many sequels for monetary gain. Hendricks is quoted saying, What cursed the Amityville house was not the DeFeo murders, or the warlock John Ketchum, nor fabricated burial grounds. It was George Lutz himself, and it rests on the backs of child abuse. George admits to beating the children during the events described in the book claiming it was something him and Kathy had never done before. However, Danny Lutz, their oldest child, remembers things differently. My Amityville Horror is a 2013 horror documentary. Directed by Eric Walter, the film centers around interviews with the Lutz's son, Daniel Lutz, who was, 
at the time of its release in his 40s. The documentary also has interviews with Susan Bartel, a psychologist, Laura DiDio and Marvin Scott of Channel 5 News and Lorraine Warren. It opens with Danielette saying that the Amityville house has been an unfortunate gift in my life. Growing up, Daniel felt as if he had no control over anything going on in his life and therefore he went out of control. Danielette's comes across as very aggressive in interviews and deeply unstable. He completely believes in all the events that George and Kathy alleged to have happened at 112 Ocean Avenue. Daniel gets verbally aggressive with anyone who contradicts him or he simply will get up and leave interviews. The only correction he makes to the events laid out in the book is that George often beat them long before ever entering the Amityville house. He never wanted to be known as the Amityville kid but carried this label his whole life. He was very close to his mother and hated when George came into the picture and legally adopted all three children. Daniel says of George, I wanted to destroy his world and recounts trying to kill George himself. They could not call George dad and were instead instructed to call him Mr. Lutz or Sir. The children's cousin remembers George was not right and that all the children were frightened of him. The children recall seeing numerous books on George's shelves on such topics as the occult and satanic history. This is supported by Laura DiDio, who became close with all the Lutz children. She remembers George as having an interest in the occult before moving to the Amityville house. Lorraine Warren said that you had to be careful not to offend George. George was interested in telekinesis and Daniel states that he had witnessed George moving things with his mind. Daniel attended therapy in order to benefit his two children, who at the time of filming were ages 19 and 20. Through therapy, Daniel has learned that he is always acting as little Danny's bodyguard, always protecting the 10-year-old boy. Susan Bartel, Daniel's psychologist, talks about the power of false memories. Daniel, who at the time of the alleged paranormal events was a 10-year-old boy, was heavily influenced by his parents. He was soaked in suggestion by the media circus, all of which altered or at least colored his memories. Children are extremely sensitive to cues from their parents, and Daniel is no exception. Daniel, along with his siblings, were dumped at various Catholic boarding schools while their parents went on world tours to be interviewed about the Amityville house. Here, they were sometimes subjected to beatings and exorcisms. Daniel would run away from home often between the ages of 12 and 15. The psychologist strongly suggests that anyone who brings children into a media frenzy like this is demonic. This supports the belief that George Lutz is the real evil that haunts the Amityville house. Another contributor to the controversies surrounding the Amityville horror is William Weber, Ronnie DeFeo's lawyer. Weber, still trying to pull for an insanity plea and attracted to the growing media attention, claimed that the Lutz's story was concocted by himself and George over several bottles of wine. Weber would go on to sue the Lutzes for $2 million for not following through with their commitment to him for a book deal. This is just one of several lawsuits George would be a part of, lawsuits which would continue all through the rest of his life. 
One such lawsuit came from the Kumarti family, who purchased 112 Ocean Avenue after the Letzes abandoned it. They were very vocal in stating that everything the Letzes have said is false, proving this with the fact that all the original hardware was still in place, never having been ripped from its hinges. The Kumartis have never experienced anything paranormal in the house, and note the Letzes' story to be very similar to the film The Exorcist. The lawsuit stems from the Cromartie's displeasure that the book and media frenzy created by the Letzes and Anson's story resulted in a lack of privacy of their home, as many people wanted to have a look at the infamous haunted house. This continues on the property to this day, much to the owners and surrounding residents' misery. In 1976, 27 residents of the area complained of massive trespassing, littering, and property destruction by people trying to get a look at the Amityville house. The house is now a celebrity in its own right, with people from all over the world coming to see the house with their own eyes. The Kumartis changed the house number from 112 to 108 in an attempt to shield them from the public. This did not work. The next owners, the O'Neills, bought the home in 1987, changed the infamous quarter moon eye windows for regular rectangle windows, again an attempt to erase the home's haunted history, and again to no avail. In 1997, a bachelor named Wilson bought the home and is extremely private. Despite all the debate about whether or not the events described in Anson's book really happened, at its core, it is a simple story, the sort of ghost story to be told around the campfire or at a slumber party with adolescents to raise goosebumps. The fact that a real family subjected their children to this and used a real-life murder and loss of life as the backbone to promote their story for fame and fortune is truly the cruelest form of evil out there and is much more horrifying than anything Anson wrote in his book. The first film adaptation of the Amityville Horror was released in 1979, directed by Stuart Rosenberg, starred James Brolin, Margot Kidder, and Rod Steiger. The film opens with the DeVale murders and then jumps ahead to one year later. The Letzes, coming to see 112 Ocean Avenue, go room to room. As they walk through, the movie cuts quickly to gunshots and flashes of Ronnie DeVale murdering his whole family. George and Kathy decide to buy the house for the bargain of $80,000, which is out of their budget, but yet is still a deal of a lifetime. The priest, called Father Delaney in the movie, then arrives at the home to find it empty. He proceeds to bless the house anyway, and hears noises upstairs that sound like children giggling. Upstairs, he can see the Letzes from a window in their backyard, but he is unable to open it. As he blesses the room, flies begin to gather. He begins to gag and cough as more and more flies appear, swarming him. There are flies all over his face and hands. He hears a terrifying voice. <coughs> Father Delaney flees from the house, terrified and sick. He tries to phone the Letzes, but only gets static. He drops the phone in pain as blisters have formed on his hands. The first unexplained event the family faces is when Amy, the Letzes' youngest child, interrupts the couple mid-coitus, complaining that her window opened in the night. 
As they go to put her back to bed, they find her rocking chair, moving all by itself. George then wakes at 3.15 a.m. and sees strange shadows in the boathouse. As he stares out the window, a cat leaps at it in classic jump-scare fashion. George begins the soon-to-be cycle of angrily chopping wood and waking at 3.15 a.m. and tending to the fire in the living room, looking more and more disheveled as the film goes on. Amy talks of Jody, her new imaginary friend, and shortly after, all the toilets run black and develop a horrible smell. Kathy then wakes at 3.15 a.m. screaming, She was shot in the head! Only to fall back asleep, unaware of her own outburst. Father Delaney attempts to go back to the house to warn the Lutzes, but the car loses control and the hood flies up before crashing into a sign, leaving him unable to warn the Lutzes of the evil in their home. Kathy's brother comes to the Amityville home before his wedding, where the $1,500 cash for the caterers mysteriously goes missing. Amy has a young babysitter who gets stuck in the closet after it shuts the door on itself. She screams and cries for hours, banging on the door. Her hands bleed, and she continues to hammer on the door until the Lutzes arrive back home to let her out. The paranormal events continue in the house, including a window slamming shut on one of the boy's hands, the front door blowing outward, and Amy claiming that Jody says it wants her to live here forever and ever so they can play together. Kathy sees red eyes glowing out her window. A number of people in town have commented on how George has begun to look like the old owner of 112 Ocean Avenue. A co-worker of George's comes to see the house with his girlfriend Caroline, who is said to be sensitive about these things. When she gets out of the car, she stammers that the house's vibes are strong. She seems both scared and intrigued by the house. Caroline tells George about Ketchum and the witch trials, that the house is built on special sacred grounds which holds devil worship and sacrifice. The dog is digging at a wall in the basement, and she says that there are people buried here. Caroline breaks the wall to find a glowing red room, and George sees the face of Ronnie DeFeo appear in thin air. Caroline's voice changes and deepens as if a man has possessed her. She yells that this is the passage to hell. Meanwhile, Father Delaney attempts to bless the house from the safety of the church, where, after a dramatic cracking of the walls and falling of the ceiling, which is something only the priest can see, is mysteriously left blind from his attempt to help the Lutzes. The strange goings-on continue at the Lutzes' home, including Kathy momentarily turning into an old woman after an attempt to bless the home themselves. George wakes at 3.15 a.m. to hear a marching band in his living room, and the floor in the red room starts to rumble and crack. George sees the giant pig with glowing red eyes in a window while the walls of the house start to bleed. George, as if possessed, comes at the family with an axe, but is then snapped out of it and takes the family and runs to the car. George then goes back for their dog, Harry, but before he can save his dog, he falls through the basement stairs and through the floor in the red room. Under the floor, there is a well full of black tar. He is covered in the tar and Harry pulls George to safety. 
As the family drives away from the home through a brutal storm, the end card reads, George and Kathleen Lutz and their family never reclaimed their house or their personal belongings. Today, they live in another state. The movie stays true to the original book to almost a fault, as the novel's subtlety is lost on film. The movie is just under two hours but feels more like three. For the most part, certain changes need to be made to a book in order to make it a movie. They are two different mediums and should be treated as such. The subtle growing dread that is built up in the book is lost on film, and we are left with a series of events that lead to a very anticlimactic ending. The acting of James Brolin as George is mediocre at best. He is very bland and does not emote very well. His makeup does a better job of saying what his mental state is than he does. Margot Kidder, on the other hand, is great as Kathy Lutz. She is charming, charismatic, and her face reads true horror when the paranormal events begin. However, the costume and hair designs for Kathy are extremely distracting from the overall story. In some scenes, she has ridiculously high pigtails with red ribbons in her hair that you would find on a little girl, not an adult woman, mother of three. In another scene, she is dressed like a grade school girl in a formal uniform. In another, Kidder is in her underwear, doing ballet with only one stocking over one of her legs. Very odd. The children are not characters at all and are only used as props for scary things to happen to. With that said, the score and soundtrack to this movie are excellent and was nominated for Best Original Score at the Academy Awards. Other highlights of the film include the woman who plays Caroline. Caroline is played by Helen Shaver, whose visceral reactions and possession show the true horrors of the house. Another highlight is the house itself and the way in which it is lit. The house is a character in its own right, and the way in which it is shot is extremely well done. Lastly, the inclusion of Jody as the imaginary pig friend is visually disturbing and true to the original novel. The commentary for this film is done by Hans Holzer, a parapsychologist and author of numerous other novels in the Amityville series. He is a believer in the Lutz's story and was a part of the Channel 5 News investigation in 1977. His commentary only consists of claims that everything is true and is not worth listening to. Join us next time for part 3 of the Amityville Horror series, where we dive into the cultural context of the movie, the Amityville franchise, and the 2005 remake. Thank you to everyone involved in making this podcast a success, including Joey Grzecki for editing and production, Rob Grzecki for composing the theme song, and Alex Lung for photography. All of the many resources used are listed in the podcast description below.